Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to mention to you that you need to check out all the work we're doing on social media. So don't worry about Instagram, don't worry about LinkedIn, don't worry about Pinterest and those types of things. Where you're going to find me is on Twitter. Every single day I'm on Twitter. We're sharing a lot of the thoughts, a lot of the tips, a lot of the breaking news is coming out on Twitter. And then add to that our expat money forum. We are doing so much amazing things in the forums. There's special content that's not found anywhere else. There's a lot of networking. There's just so much happening on this forum that I really hope you get a chance to participate. And you can access that at expatmoneyforum.com. So find me on Twitter at Thora Mikkel or join the forum at Expat Money Forum. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is the sole portfolio manager of Granite State Capital Management. After reading his first book on Warren Buffett when he was just 14 years old, he became passionate about value investing and has been managing his own capital since February of 2005. GSCM maintains a focus, but is not limited to identifying opportunities among ignored and obscure securities, which tend to be either undiscovered or misunderstood by the wider market. They focus their areas on the high barriers to entry and low competition market environment, leading to a more inefficient price securities. Large head funds and institutions will not be able to or willing to look into these areas leading to higher inefficiencies. Today, we are going to be talking to our guest about opportunities in the financial markets overseas and what he expects to boom. Please welcome to the show, Eric Schlein. Eric, how are you? I am good. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure is all mine. Why don't you take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory? I know that we covered a couple of things in the intro, but I mean, there's got to be so much more there that I want to explore. That was, yeah, it was quite the intro. Uh, so I did get into investing when I was 14. Um, I was at a bookstore with my mom and wanted to be a big boy and go to the business section and found a book that was something like, you know, a teen's guide to making more money than your parents, which was very appealing for me at the time. So I just started reading the book at the bookstore and, you know, talked about different investors and different financial concepts, you know, basic things like, you know, don't get into too much debt, don't spend more than, than, than you earn, you know, little things like that. And then I saw a compound interest graph 
And I thought to myself, wow, if I could do this for like 50 years, uh, that would be pretty amazing. So I had that, I had that insight. And then I was like, well, what, what would it take to be able to do this for 50 years? And that was, I didn't know. So I started reading about some of the investors mentioned in this book. And, you know, I read, I read a bunch of these books. A lot of it didn't really make sense to me until I got to Buffett. And when I got to reading about Warren Buffett, you know, buying an asset for less than it's worth, very, very simple idea. And you could even say that the, the value of any asset, whether it's a stock or a bond or a piece of real estate or whatever, is all the cash flows it'll ever produce, you know, discounted back into the present at some discount rate. So I, um, I, I got hooked and I started, uh, you know, just writing down interesting businesses that I wanted to study to start studying different industries. And then I came across Warren Buffett's partnership letters. And this was like a game changer for me. So, you know, what a lot of people don't know this is that before Buffett was running uh, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, he had his own investment partnership in the, in the 1960s, and I think late 1950s as well. And a lot of the stuff that he was doing back then was a very, very obscure, small kinds of securities. You're, I'm talking about, you know, um, companies trading below the securities in the bank account and, and, and companies trading below liquidation value and doing arbitrage. All of these things that the modern day Berkshire Hathaway is not really doing, or at least not doing in scale, right? And and the simple answer is because they can't, right? They have you know a hundred billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet. They're not going to look at a nine million dollar business. However, I thought to myself, I wonder if you know he was managing small sums of money again, if he would be doing things more like he was doing in the the Buffett partnership. So. At one of the Berkshire Hathaway meetings, when I was like 18 or 19 years old, um, I asked Warren and Charlie, and I said, um, you know, if you were managing smaller sums of money, would you be investing more similar to the way that you were doing things in the Buffett partnership? And they both said, you know, that's where they would be focusing their time if they had to do it again, you know, if they were working with small sums of money. So it made me realize that I should spend the vast majority of my time where I have a real edge. And I think as an investor, you know, I came to the understanding there's a few places I have an edge. One of them, which is the obvious one, is in the really tiny, small, obscure kinds of securities. Um, they're very, very scary to, to the average person, so people don't look at them. But then for large institutions, like you said in the intro, large institutions, you know, it's a waste of their time, you know, to, to spend $50,000 or $80,000 a year on some analysts to to focus on investments where you can't even put a, a, a substantial position on, it's a waste of their time and, and, and money. So it leaves uh, those securities to, you know, boutique firms like Grand State Capital, but also, you know, anyone who has a smaller portfolio, say under $10 million, um, which is not small, but, you know, for an institution that would be small, um, they can look at those kinds of securities. So that was the first place. And then the second place I realized where I have an advantage is, in businesses where it may take a few years to work out. And the thing is, when you're dealing in markets, a lot of the major market participants, you know, institutions, they have different, um, they have different incentive structures. You know, you and I, we just want to make money. However, imagine, you know, put yourself in the position you're working for a fund or you're working for an investment bank and you invest in something that's a little bit different and it's not working out, and you're underperforming the market for a few years, well, you get fired. So one of the, uh, one of the uh, incentive structures of market participants is to avoid job loss. 
So they would rather do average or lose the same amount of money as everyone else is losing because then they could say, well, yeah, we're down 30%, but everyone else was down 30%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, if you're down 20% when everyone's up 50%, you've lost your job. Mm -hmm. So when you have, say, larger businesses where there's some kind of temporary scandal or there's, there's headlines on the news that are negative, a lot of mutual funds and, and larger institutions just don't want to be in those securities um, for the job security or because it looks bad to investors that are more short-term oriented. So there's another competitive advantage. You know, I, I call it time arbitrage. I'm sure someone came up with it before me. I didn't take, make the, up the term, but you can call it time arbitrage that you can hold the security for a long time. And if you're willing to take some short-term losses, you can make a lot of money. So those are the two areas where I, where I spend the, the most time. Okay, well, there's a ton I want to unpack there, but I agree with you because if you understand how someone is motivated and if their motivate their main motivator is just to keep their job, it's not actually to make you as much money as possible or to get the best performance out of the portfolio, well, then things don't necessarily line up. And I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with that. I mean, human beings are human beings and we're going to look after ourselves and our family and it goes out in a circle from there. But if it's a case of, you know, make money right this minute so that your um, your port portfolio looks good at the end of the year versus 10 years out, 20 years out, which could really have those um, tremendous gains that I think a lot of people are looking for. You have to, you have to understand this. Totally. I mean, you even look at, say, the Berkshire Hathaway track record, speaking of Warren Buffett, I mean, they're up over a million percent since the 1960s. But there's been several times where that where that uh, stock, you know, top tick to bottom tick has has gone down more than fifty percent. So there have been people that have lost money on Berkshire Hathaway, even though the stock's up a million percent. Yeah, that's pretty wild to get your head around. Um, the other thing that really struck me while you were speaking is you pretty much are doing the opposite like very contrarian to how most people invest. I see that so many people just want to be in big tech. I mean, big tech, big tech, big tech, everything. I mean, I used to invest actually not. Invest is not quite the right word. Um, on Netflix, I used to short Netflix because I would look at the financials and I would look at the business model and I would look at their cost to acquire a customer and go, this just can't go on forever. And it has, when, and I was completely wrong. The stock price didn't reflect what I thought it was supposed to be worth. And I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars over a period doing that. But I mean, most people just jump on whatever the hottest thing is without really looking at the fundamentals. And when you look at a stock or when you're in the market, um, what, what, what is the saying? And I'm sure you remember it is the, the market can be irrational longer than you can, longer stay, than solvent. You can stay solvent. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I experienced that firsthand. Um, so uh, I guess maybe before we continue on, what is your opinion on some of the big tech and the way that they're, when you look at their financials and how they do things? I, I'm curious your opinion. Yeah, so it depends on the company. Okay, there are. Well, let's, a say, lot let's of... take Fang stocks just for sure. shits and giggles because it's easy. So, so with the Fang stocks, I actually think a lot of them are cheap. Um, I, I actually, you know, and, and for full disclosure, and, and this is also not you know investment advice, but you know, I do own for myself and my clients. We do have a position both in Facebook and Amazon. We've had it for a few years now, um, and. But I don't own Netflix and I don't own Google, even though I think, you know, if you bought Google, you'll probably do okay. Um, I'm, I'm probably the least sure about Netflix, even though I, 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 I tend to agree with the bull argument more than the bear argument with Netflix. So it's interesting that the, it's one of these situations where the FANG stocks are popular, but I don't think that they're overly expensive. 
Um, you know, you have, say, let's take a look at Facebook, for instance, you know, if you want to look at that, right? You have a company that is, you could argue, the largest advertising business in the world, and they don't have any ad designers. Like, that's that's kind of miraculous, right? And, you know, and, and you're starting to see this show up with other businesses, you know, sort of a big picture, right? You have, you know, Uber, right? The largest taxi company. They don't even have a fleet. Airbnb, Airbnb owns no hotels. No hotels, right? <laughs> so the 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 way that um, business models are working, they've they've almost inverted. Where you know it, it used to be you you had to acquire all the stuff and then sell it and and then pay for advertising and you know you'd first have your early adopters and then as time and time goes on then you have to you know pay for a Super Bowl commercial to keep going up. Well now it now it's the opposite. At the beginning it's really really hard, but then as you grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Your 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 cost for expansion keep going down. Um, so some of these business models like Amazon and Google and Facebook, these are some of the best business models we've ever seen in the history of humanity. And you know this this is not the '90s where you had these you know speculative tech companies that were never going to make a profit. However, I think that the stain of the '90s is potentially part of the reason that this is cheap. I don't like to spend too much mental power on understanding why something is cheap because there could be a million factors. Um, but I just remember when I was investing in, in Facebook and Amazon, I said, well, why would you pay, you know, 30 or 40 times earnings for a stock or with Amazon, right? You know, hundreds of times earnings for a stock. But if you look at Amazon, right, they're reinvesting all that, um, almost all their cash flows go back into the business that they're getting double digit IRRs on. So if you, so I think one of the reasons Amazon has always looked expensive is that modern day gap accounting does not really work for those kinds of businesses. So for an example, right, you know, Amazon has spent the last, what is it, three decades now um, investing in R&D. Well, I'd make the argument that R&D is an asset, but that's not showing up on the balance sheet. That's showing up as an expense, right? However, I would say that that is no different than a tire, you know, a tire manufacturing plant investing in a new manufacturing plant. Right, a tire, tire company investing in a new manufacturing plant. The difference is a bank will look at that and say, oh, you can take a loan against your, your plant, right? Or you can sell some bonds against that plant. With Amazon, that doesn't show up on the books. So it looks like they have less assets than they actually do. And because those profits are being deferred for many, many, many years, it looks like they're way less profitable than they actually are. But then you're riding this tremendous S-curve, um, which the adoption cycle is, is extremely steep. You have, it's, it's interesting. If you look back hundreds and hundreds of years, the S curves keep getting steeper. The adoption cycles keep, keep speeding up. You know, and even if you look at, say, the last 100 years with the radio and TV, that was a lot slower, automobiles even slower than that, than, say, now with uh, you know, uh, computers and, and mobile phones, which was like a, you know, it took like five years for 50% of Americans to use that technology. So if you look at where the wealth has been made over history, over hundreds and hundreds of years, it's people who are heavily betting on these, um, on their, you know, technological S curves of the day. So what do you think about regulators coming in, um, with Facebook, with Jack, Jack and Twitter and things like this, like, there's going to be some problems, I would imagine, or what I would see. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not, too, as an investor, I'm not too worried about that. If anything, I mean, it sounds messed up to say, but, you know, if you have more regulations on big tech, 
that just further entrenches big tech. Yeah. So it, it creates a monopoly in a lot of ways. Right. Sure. And, and then and if, if you want to compete, and... it costs more money and you have to pay lawyers. It's like, this is why big companies tend to, um, you know, hire lobbyists and, and say, Hey, yeah, we, you, you know, when, you know, when, when a big company says, Hey, yeah, definitely regulate us. And they, they're saying it uh, sound altruistic. Well, really they're protecting profits. For sure. Well, I you think know? that a lot of this $15 this minimum wage, you know, this is the the death nail for a lot of, of small businesses. Why, why do you think Walmart tends to uh, be a strong proponent of the minimum wage? Yeah, because it destroys their competition. Yeah, because they're the not only ones who can afford to do it, and then afterwards they can buy up. Yeah. Exactly. So okay, so we've said all of this. Um, yes. So why do you invest overseas then? If if, if yeah, Facebook well, and and Amazon and these big tech companies in the United States mm -hmm. are still affordable and expected to do well why would someone want to look overseas or why do you look overseas well and to be to be to be fair i was i was buying amazon a few years ago i'm not buying amazon right okay. now um I, I would say I, I think facebook probably is cheap though right now um you know i would potentially buy more um right now um i do have actually i have sold some put options on facebook stock at around a 200 dollars strike price so that is a view that facebook is pretty cheap right now and not expecting it to go below 200 um, but in terms of why I go overseas, well, there's some really interesting, you know, I don't want to say obvious, but there's overseas markets in general are, I find more, more stuff to buy overseas right now in the United States. So I don't have some, you know, psychological anchoring towards overseas. For me, it's that there's, you know, there's other markets that are regulated and, um, do have financial structures and, and if you can look, I'm finding companies that are trading, you know, at, at half of liquidation value, some companies trading below the, the cash in the bank account, stuff that you don't really ever find in the United States. So, and, and, and there, a lot of them are thinly traded. So again, large institutions can't touch them, but. Well, flush that out a little bit. So my listeners kind of understand what you're talking about. Sure. So I'll, I'll use a real life example. Please. Um, last year, so it's 2021. So at the end of 2019, I started buying this very underfollowed company on the alternative investment market in London. And, and for your listeners, it's kind of like the, the British equivalent of the pink sheets in, in the United States or the over-the-counter markets in the United States. And except it's even more obscure and more arcane. <laughs> so they have like an auction system where the stocks will trade a few times a day and you have to put a bid in and it's, it's, it's terrible, but I love how terrible it is because it, it, it turns off a lot of people. A lot of brokerage firms um, like won't even let their customers buy stocks on the alternative investment market because they see it, it as risky, or because maybe it's too they see it as risky. Yeah, okay. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the discount brokers, especially, are go above and beyond to avoid people doing dumb stuff on their platforms, um, which you know again creates opportunity. So there was this company called Game Account Network or GAN PLC. And they do like the back end for um, casinos, mostly in the United States, actually, now that there's, you know, the, the legalization of online gambling, but there were, the, the, the company um, was traded in, in, the, in the alternative investment market in, in, in England. And you could buy a company growing at, you know, triple digits in revenue, where they're going to have, you know, their project normalized EBITDA margins of 30 to 40% uh, at scale. And they're the best at what they do. You know, it's, it's actually very, very tough to get into that industry. 
Um, I would say GAN has probably already won in the United States in the U.S. business, and they have opportunities to expand overseas. A lot of companies just do it terribly. So, you know, there's cheaper alternatives, but then if your casino doesn't work online, that's kind of an issue. Um, so I was buying this company at, you know, maybe three or four times revenues for a company growing at 100% a year in revenues. Where if you look at these, you know, equivalent SaaS businesses in the United States, they're trading at, you know, 8, 12, 15, 30 times revs. And then when uh, coronavirus first hit in March, the shares went down uh, to about two times revenue. So I loaded up even more. So buying a business that's pretty much a, you're, you're buying a SaaS business in, in, in the casino industry. And in for everyone who's gambling. listening, SaaS is this um, software as a service. Yeah. So wonderful business growing at 100% a year buying into two times revenues would not have existed in the United States. Yeah. Um, and so what that's kind of a, market a, capitalization are we talking about? How, how big of a business? So the market cap on GAM was maybe $200, $250 million, but it was also very thinly traded. You know, the management owns a lot of stock. So for me to even, you know, buy $100,000 worth of stock, I may not even get that position filled, you know, in a day. So if you're, again, if you're managing billions of dollars. It takes a week or something to get your position. <laughs> Wow! If you were managing billions of dollars, it might take you know six months a year to get your position. It'd be more, and it wouldn't even be a big position at that point. So what? You buy like you know a three million dollar stake in it, ten million dollar stake. It's ridiculous. So that is an example. There's also you know if you look at Japan right now, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, the, the the stuff I'm finding in Japan is 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 crazy. I, I mean. I have a I have a large basket of stocks, so that's the other thing too. Like with companies that are very high quality, where I'm getting it at a good valuation, I'm I have no problem putting you know ten thirty. I've I've even put forty percent of my capital before into a company. With some of these sort of Japanese businesses, right, um, I'm buying a basket of these stocks because I don't really know which ones are going to work out. And to give some context on Japan, Japan has kind of an interesting culture where shareholder returns historically have not been what companies value, right? So they'll value things like honor and they'll value things, you know, like having pride and what they're doing. So you see this in South Korea as well. Um, there's, a, there's a famous story of uh, a company in South Korea called POSCO. Um, they're a steel company. And I think they own like their headquarters has like the second largest fish tank in the world. And, and I remember hearing the story of this investor um, visiting the headquarters and the management, like the first thing the management did was show the investor like the second largest fish tank in the world. And the, and the guy was like, how much did this cost? And it was, you know, some absurd amount. It's like, isn't this like a waste of, you know, shareholder capital? And, and, I, and it was basically like, well, well, maybe no. I mean, it's look how, look how prideful we are that we get to own the second largest fish tank. <laughs> so it was like completely di- like not a, on so the same page. So there's cultural things in the markets that we as Westerners probably can't get our heads around at first glance and things that are counted that are not going to show up on a standard balance sheet, things that we well, don't. And I would, yeah. And I would say they're actually been harmful to shareholder returns. So it's, it, it, so, you know, so actually I would say some of these things do show up on a balance sheet to, to the company's detriment and, and, and as they should. So for instance, you have these companies in Japan 
that are like, you know, 600 years old. They have whatever their operating businesses, but then they also randomly own an insurance company, a fishery, and then 90% of their book value is in real estate that doesn't do anything on the books, but they've held it because it's been in the family name. So they're very, you know, it's, it's, it's a pride thing and an honor thing that they own all this real estate. So then like in the main operating business might be okay, but because they own all this real estate, the returns on equity go to like a half a percent. Yeah, that's very different than <laughs> than what we would probably be treating. Yeah, and uh, and the thing in Japan, it's it's very hard to do shareholder activism for for a lot of reasons. It, it's it's very expensive to go through the court systems, and it takes years and years and years, even if you do think you'd have the vote. So it's tough to make change, but there is some signs that things are slowly starting to change in Japan for the better. Um, but even if they don't. There's such a negative view on sort of the Japanese uh, culture of business and just sort of horrible, you know, these pet projects that the Japanese, uh, a lot of these Japanese companies do and um, that the stock prices sometimes reflect that. So even though the Japanese stock market has, you know, not done much for the last, you know, whatever few decades, um, if you had purchased a basket of say stocks trading a significant discount to liquidation value, You've actually done, you know, maybe like, I don't remember the exact number, but it's in the low uh, double digit teens uh, annualized. So you've, you can actually get pretty good returns taking extremely low risk in Japan. So like an example, just looking at my notes here, just an example of, you know, a Japanese company. So, you know, here's a, let's see, here, here's one. So this is a, I don't even know how to say it, but Marafuji Sheet Piling Company, uh, you know, ticker symbol 8046. So I, I own this uh, for a bunch of my investors. It's a profitable company, has, uh, you know, a P ratio under 10, dividend yield of 4%. And the thing trades at a discount to, um, you know, a probable liquidation value. It trades, you know, certainly below, um, you know, net current asset value. Nothing wrong with the business. It just kind of, trickles along and does its thing, you'd probably do okay. But the thing is, I don't know if you do okay. So, you know, that could be a business where you don't really make much money. Maybe over the next 10 years, it's only up 1% annualized. That's that's a possibility or 2% annualized. However, it's probably not going to zero. Like, you know, they're, they're a good balance sheet. And you want a basket of those. What generally happens in a basket of those, whether it's in Japan or another country, is you know maybe one or two will go to zero over over a few years um you will have a bunch of them that just don't really do anything they just kind of go up and down and your returns are bad but then you'll have a few where either something good happens or just something less bad happens right so if a company goes from just like terrible to bad <laughs> you, you can you can make you know three five ten times your money and it's usually a few of those that create the significant outperformance over time. And so when you um, say a basket, are you using an ETF to buy these? Are you buying these with your no. brokerage house in the US? Or you actually have an international brokerage or an offshore brokerage where you get to participate in the stock market and actually trade the Japanese stock market? Yeah. So I, I use Interactive Brokers um, and they have a, you know, for your, your average investor, or even for someone like me running a firm, they have a very good platform for international markets. So I, I have access to so many different kinds of currencies. You know, I own stuff in Poland and Japan and England. And I, you know, I can, I just bought shekels the other day for something in the Israeli stock market. So they have a great platform for that. And it's pretty inexpensive. Um, the only one that's a, that's a little uh, tougher to navigate. Well, there's two um, 
if you want to buy stuff in India or South Korea, um, there's certain things that there's certain hoops that you need to go through and there's like different licensing requirements. And um, I don't know the exact details. It's possible. It just takes some more work. Um, but if you're willing to travel um, or you're willing to, you know, hire a, a good lawyer to help you kind of go through that process, it's, it's possible to, uh, to get stuff out there. And I think there probably is opportunity in India and certainly there's opportunity in South Korea and similar to Japan, a lot of stuff is very, very cheap. We will just take a quick break. So I want to remind you to go to expatmoneyshow.com to pick up your free special report called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. We have had some really good feedback with this. It's actually a project I've been working on for probably about four years now and been offering it to my subscribers. And I am constantly updating it with the best and the newest resources for people wanting to go abroad. It is really amazing. I'm really happy with the work that we've done. And it's really different than a lot of the other projects out there or special reports or eBooks or anything like that. And this is one of the main differences. It is highly curated, it is highly condensed. It is not 400, 500 pages long and talking about every single thing out there and every single little detail. Actually, that doesn't serve anyone. Your best bet is always to go with the really, really condensed information so that you can connect the dots, so you can understand what's happening and how things fit together. And that's exactly what this special report does. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can find it completely for free 100% free at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, enjoy, and let's jump back into the interview. Yeah, South Korea is one of my favorite countries in the world. I've been there more than 50 times. My best friend from back home lives there for maybe 15 years, and I go and visit him several... At one point, I was visiting him several times a month. I was going back and forth and doing business when I lived in the Middle East. And yeah... I mean, going to South Korea is going to the future. If you want to know what the future looks like, a, a very bright and happy future, go to South Korea. I mean, they're so technologically advanced and the way that they do things, and they're so hardworking. Like, I mean, they're gonna eat your lunch. Like Westerners beware, because the work ethic in Japan and South Korea and in China is on such a different level that people don't understand in the West. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It's, um, what, what, do you, what do you love about just spending time there? Okay. Well, for me personally, the food is just unbelievable. You have, I'm, I'm a big meat eater. So they do Korean barbecues everywhere and you can take your whole group out of, of friends out for dinner for Korean barbecue with lots of beef and pork. You drink soju and you absolutely get wasted. And, you have so much fun. It's loud and energetic. Everybody is really excited to be out. And it doesn't matter if it's a Friday night or if it's a Tuesday night. Everybody is out in Seoul. And then at the end of the day, you go to pay the bill for 10 people or something, and it's like 150 bucks or something. Like It's super, super affordable. And you've sat there for three hours, and it's $150, $200. And then you go and sing karaoke, and then you go to the pub, and then you go to the disco, and then it's just all over the place. But add to that, I mean, if you go want to travel anywhere in Japan your taxi fare is like a million dollars. You go to South Korea and it's like five bucks. It's your value for money in Korea is just spectacular. And I've been to Japan more than 12 times. I mean, maybe 15, maybe 18 times I've been to Japan and traveled all through there. And I love it as well. And I love the culture and the food and everything. However, the cost is so much more 
that unless you are really making a lot of money or you just don't care, um, you, you're going to feel it when you get the bill at the end of the day. I have money and, I, and I'm well-to-do, but I still like value. I'm still, I still like to make sure I'm getting a good deal. And considering we're doing a podcast about value investing, I think that's, that's okay to say. So. <laughs> yeah. But okay, so I want to I want to ask a little bit more um, sure. in depth quas- questions here Please. about the investing itself. So you're actually able to participate with a with interactive brokers, which I know their platform very well. They have access to all of the markets. Now, answer me this: Are you investing in U.S. dollars into these countries, or are you buying local currency and using local currency to buy? M- most of the time, I'm buying local currencies. Good. Well, straight off the bat, from my and anyone who's listened to me on any other show and they t- hear my perspective about diversification, it's you need to be doing it in local currency. Because I find all the time it's like someone invests in a foreign company, but they have a ticker symbol on the New York Stock Exchange, and then they're buying it with USD. And if something happens to the US economy, well, that is 100% correlated. I try to make sure that my things actually have different correlation and try to look at the political aspect of these countries as well. So good for you for actually taking the extra step to make sure you're doing it in different currencies. Well, a lot of time you have to do it in different currencies because there is, you know, when you're, especially when you're dealing with some of these tiny little Japanese dinky companies, there's, there's no American ADR for these. Yeah. Because I'm Canadian, we did so much on the TSX, but then I could find the exact same stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. And it was like, well, why would I buy it in U.S. dollars, convert my money over to USD, buy it there, and then when I wanted to take a profit, I would have to sell my USD and then come back into the Canadian. So I would have those markets running perpendicular. And to your point also about Korea, I used to try, I used to buy ETFs on the Korean, um, like reflecting the Korean companies, but there was no way for me to actually go in there and buy individual companies in Korea. Or at least I wasn't able to find 10 years ago when I was looking at it. Yeah, there, there, there are ways, but it's, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more challenging for sure. So what are some of the other trends that you're seeing or maybe even um, countries or economies that you expect to perform well uh, going forwards with everything that's happening? So I, I don't know necessarily what I expect to perform well. I mean, I think that, look, I, I think over time, um, you know, companies are countries that, you know, have good governance and, and, and decent regulatory systems will, will do okay over time. Um, what I'm more interested in is where are the places that are getting a bad rap, but you can find stuff that's low risk. So for instance, I don't invest in China or Russia for the most part because for, you know, for obvious reasons, there's, there's, there's actually a lot of, you know, uh, country risk with China. There's a lot of fraud uh, with Russia, you know, there's nationalization risk and, and, and all kinds of, you know, accounting risk. Um, not to say there aren't bargains in China or Russia. It, it, it just, it's harder. It's harder. Being said though, you have say the alternative investment market in London. There's a lot of interesting stuff. On there, I'll just tell you if you if you manually scroll through every listing on the AIM market, and you want to do the work, you'll you'll find stuff. If you look at Japan, right, it has a bad rep. I don't think it's going to get worse, but I think there's possibility for it to get better. If it goes from from you know bad corporate governance to just less bad corporate governance, all those stocks are going to go up. And if it doesn't, which is so funny to think about because we usually think of, you know, 
new management coming in and being an absolute gun. Like these people are amazing and can see the future. And it's just like, no, we don't even need like an incredible person here. We just need a less crappy one to come in or literally a, a, yeah. like a little bit more competent, which is funny. I mean, I, I find that funny. Yeah. So, but even if nothing happens, a basket of those Japanese stocks, I think would do okay over time. Um, so those are some places to look. I think there's some interesting stuff in Poland. Um, yeah, let's let's go into Poland and Eastern Europe because I see a lot of um, opportunity coming out of Eastern Europe. I know that I have a lot of friends that are making huge money in Ukraine at the moment. Um, Georgia and Estonia seem to be really up and coming countries. Yeah, and the, 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 prob is the problem coming. is a lot, a lot of the, a lot of those markets though are reflecting that. So a lot of those markets do are are expensive, but again. Those markets also have, if you could look at the small and microcap companies in some of those markets in Eastern Europe, I think there's opportunity. I think there's opportunity in South Africa, you know, because there's all the negative headlines on, on South Africa these days. Also, yeah. um, we can we can talk about South Africa, which I I know very very well, and I would be super surprised to hear you say that because, well, we can get into South Africa in a minute. Let, let's focus on Eastern Europe and kind of what some of the companies that you've seen or what their performances and, and some things like that. And then let's remind me, we're going to circle back to South Africa afterwards. Okay. Yeah. I mean, with, with Eastern Europe I, and it's not, I don't do a deep dive on these businesses. So again, there, there are, there are companies in, in, in Eastern Europe and, you know, I have one or two in Poland right now that just, you know, from a balance sheet perspective, you know, they're not losing a lot of money or making a little bit of money trading at like 30, 40 cents on the dollar book value. Again, a basket of those, I, I don't think you can go wrong. But in terms of some, you know, major view on Eastern Europe, I th my, my only view is I think it'll, I think it'll over time get better. Um, I don't think it's going to get worse. Okay, so give me some examples then of the companies that you've looked for in Poland, and then maybe like how you, I don't know, found them or decided that this was what you wanted to, to put some money into. Sure. So. We take a step back and, and just use Poland as an example. Poland has a history of very bad corporate governance. Um, it's very, very hard to do shareholder activism in Poland. So Poland has been a country where a lot of those businesses have been hit over the years and for good reasons um, from, a, from a market uh, valuation perspective. So when I'm, when I'm looking for businesses um, and, you know, Poland is just, one of many countries that, I, that I've invested in, it's less about the future of the country. You know, all that has to happen in Poland is for corporate governance to get better, which I think it likely is. In, in a, and I don't think that's very controversial to say. I think that's sort of the consensus view. However, when you go into these sort of tiny, you know, micro cap, small cap, micro cap companies in these Eastern European countries like Poland, you find um, you can find discrepancies in market price. So, for instance, I found this one business called NTT Systems. It's a very small position. It's part of a basket of securities, you know, all around the world. And I don't have a grand view on the company other than it's trading below liquidation value, and I don't think it's going to zero. So, the business, you know, is is a uh, it's like a thirteen million dollar business. They sell, you know, computers, right? So kind of a simple, simple business. And uh, 
The stock today is trading at significant discounts to book value. Um, you know, it trades at under you know half of book value. It trades at about sixty cents on a dollar of uh, tangible book value. When I was buying it a few months ago, and in, in you know late twenty twenty, it was trading at around thirty cents on the dollar of tangible book value. It trades at you know five times free cash flow. It's it it's it's uh and, and it makes some money. So is, is it a great business? No, it's actually a pretty mediocre business. But should the business be worth you know fifty cents on the dollar of their assets? Probably not. Um, being pro- especially being profitable. So that's a kind of valuation where I don't have a view on that specific one. But if you find ten of those, you're going to do okay. So you're really looking for very little downside risk with a potential for a lot of upside risk. And that's kind of how you're looking at these companies. Okay. Okay. Totally. Yeah. I mean, if this company goes from mediocre to decent, even if it has one or two good years, I mean, the stock would trade above book value. Maybe we get a 15 times earnings multiple or 50, you know, 10, 50 times cash flow multiple. And then the stock's up, you know, two, three, four times just from going from, you know, mediocre to good. Well, yeah. that happened. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, and nothing we're discussing today is recommendations to buy. We're just we're using these as examples to uh, understand value investing when looking at foreign markets. Okay, to, so to circle around with our conversation about South Africa, I would just be mindful of where the country is going. This is a country I know quite a bit about. Um, the majority of my friends of where I live here in Panama and who I go and eat and drink with every day are all from South Africa. And my understanding about the country, and and I have traveled there, is that there's massive human flight, uh, not just capital flight, but human flight. So a lot of the really skilled workers, someone like a heart surgeon or a neurosurgeon or lawyers or accountants, a lot of them are staying in the country. Now, we've seen people leave over the last 20 years for South Africa. But even though the that person might be staying, they've sent their child to university in the UK or in Holland or in New York or something like that. And that child who is now a professional in a very highly skilled field is not coming back to South Africa. They're staying as expats in this new country. And in a lot of cases, they're going to immigrate there forever. So in the next few years, and I think it's actually already started, these really highly technical positions are no longer going to be filled. So when I look at, I I look at things a little bit different than you, Eric, because I'm not looking at the micro, I'm always looking at the macro. I look from the economics of the country and try to figure out if that is a country that I want to go forwards. For me, I think South Africa is in some serious, serious trouble as a nation. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not, you're from South Africa, please don't hate on me. I'm not trying to be rude or say anything bad against you guys, like I said, my best friends in the world are from South Africa, but the, there are some legitimate concerns about the country and where the economy is going. To- totally. So now I, I would say that, you know, the, the point of view that you have is probably the consensus view. I don't think anyone who is, you know, reads the news goes, oh, well, South Africa, wow, there's a real bright future over the next few years, right? <laughs> no, I don't think anyone's thinking that, right? So how I look at things as a value investor is I'll say, well, everyone already knows what you just said, or at least there's some consensus around that. You might have different, you know, small, smaller technical details, but no one thinks that South Africa is, is, doesn't have its troubles. So when I'm looking in South Africa, I'm going to have a, 
much stricter, um, you know, criteria. I might want to say, okay, can I find a profitable business uh, trading at two or three times earnings? So even though it's in a declining environment, well, if I have a good business with good returns on capital and good margins, and I can buy it at two, three times earnings, I would. Pro- I think I'll probably actually make money, even though the declining environment, the environment's in the decline. You know, it's it's no different than say investing in like a typewriter company or a beeper company or you know a company that sells mm-hmm. an asset where the industry is certainly in decline. Side note on this in one, fact, I think fax machines are going to make a comeback. And we can go into why I think that fax machines, because they're super secure and they can't be hacked, they're not the same way as everything online. And I think going into the future, people are going to want 1990s technology and the fax machine. I'm rooting for it, man. I'm rooting for the fax machine. <laughs> well, isn't that why a lot of government agencies like still use faxes and stuff like that? It's, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, look, a lot of those kinds of businesses and it's, you know, slightly off topic. Sorry, I had to, I had to chime in there. I interrupt. That's what I do, Eric. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's your show. <laughs> but, you know, with declining industries, often the margins, the profit margins get so high on those businesses that if you can sort of ride, you know, sort of ride, ride that industry down, but take it as much cash flow as possible mm-hmm. on the way down, you know, you, you could still do okay. And so, you know, there's actually a company also on the alternative investment market that I've been looking at and they're in a declining, uh, declining industry right now. And they're trading a 25, a 25 or 24% wow. free cash flow yield. And they're probably gonna be around for another 10 years. So I think you'd probably do okay. So I, I would say when you're looking at, you know, countries and then looking at certain industries in those countries, don't be afraid if something's in decline or there's something where there's, there's trouble brewing. Now, what I would be, no, here's, so here's what I say what you should avoid. So here's what I would avoid. You know, if you have a, say a Japanese stock and, or stock in Poland or whatever, and it's trading at say half of book value or, you know, 40 cents on the dollar of tangible assets or whatever, whatever it is. And then you see that the company is selling shares. So for instance, I remember, looking at a uh, Chinese business, it was years ago. And it was trading at like, you know, it was trading below the cash in its bank account and it was selling stock. And I'm thinking that's, that's a little strange. Why would the business be selling, not, not buying back stock? Well, it turned out, you know, two years later that the cash wasn't actually there and the company was a fraud and didn't exist and went to zero overnight. So some of the warning flags would be if a company is so optically cheap, and the, and the management selling uh, is either selling stock themselves or the company is selling shares to raise capital. If you're raising capital below liquidation value and you don't have any debt, that's a warning flag right there. Um, another red flag could be, um, you know, it's a, it's a, Jap- so you see this with a lot of Japanese firms, especially. Um, they'll have a big part of their revenues coming from some Chinese manufacturing plant. There's, there, there's a decent chance that that's a fraudulent business. Uh, if you see a lot of the revenues coming from China, but they're listed in Japan. Um, not saying it's inherently a fraud, but it, it increases the risk. So if I can find a just as cheap a company, but with no Chinese operations, why would I make the game harder on myself? Um, there's other things to look for. So for instance, if you have a business where the CEO um, is taking some egregious salary and there's all these like sort of inter, you know, 
family transactions. You, you want to look at some of that stuff if there's weird loans going out and um, and that note. And then the only other thing I would I would say is if things have always been really bad, say where you know the CEO takes a million dollars a year on like a twelve million dollar market cap company, and the company barely breaks even, and it's clearly a business just to enrich the CEO. Sure, the stock might be optically cheap, but if not, if the management doesn't change and if the management owns all the stock, then it's not actually a cheap stock. So those are the things I would certainly avoid. And then how you underwrite risk is going to certainly depend on the country. So, you know, I'm I'm willing to accept a little bit more in Japan than I would mm-hmm. be in South Africa. That makes sense. You know, I'm willing to buy a business at right. I mean, if 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 you had a terrible business that's trading at you know, 60 cents on the dollar of, of net current asset value in South Africa, I'm not necessarily interested because I can buy the exact same thing in Japan without all the country risk. So Eric, let, let, let's imagine for a second. I, I want to understand more about your methodology. So you sit down at your desk, it's first thing Monday morning, and you decide that you want to start doing research on a new sector or a new country or a new foreign investment. Walk me through your morning. What kind of things are you looking for? How... How do you physically do this? Like the, the details. So there's a few. Um, so there's, so there's, I'll, 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 there's two answers to that. There's the, the first one, which is I will just manually, you know, if you go on any stock exchange website, you can find a list of all the securities that are traded on that exchange. So, you know, I have a spreadsheet of every single, you know, security listed on the alternative investment market. And, you know, I've looked in Poland. I've, I've I've looked at every single business in Iraq. Like I, like I, I look at everything. So there's there's that, and that's going to take a lot of time. It's a lot of grueling work. But so do you go you know, through you them one by if, one, or are you scanning and then you see something and you're like, yeah. oh, that's kind of interesting, and then you go into a little bit more detail, or is it the the one by one every single thing you you your eyes pass over? Okay, it's it's a it's a bit of both. So it's like you know someone asked. Buffett once in terms of like, you know, when he was looking through his Moody's manuals when he was younger, you know, how he, you know, kind of what his method was. And he was like, well, I started with A. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he says so it's, much it's, with it's so little thing. words. It's just incredible. Yeah. Isn't it great? Yeah. So, so it's so, so the short answer is I start with A, right? Um, and, a lot of the businesses, you know, especially if there's English financials. I mean, look, I look at over-the-counter stocks in, in the United States too, right? So, I mean, if I there's in the United States, there's obvious like just like old tax shells, and um, you know, there's a company in the United States that like their main business is finding Bigfoot. Like, you know, there's just stuff like that that I'm gonna skip. Um, in Japan, though, I don't understand what any of the businesses actually are. Right? They just have all different interesting names. Um, so with those. You know, I'll, I'll look through, and um, I'll see the ones that are that are, you know, trading at a discount to their book value, and then I'll start there, and then I'll say, okay, that's interesting. I'll go on their website, see if they have a website. Um, do they have you know any operations in China? I'll look in their financial statements. I'll use a lot of Google Translate. You know, you can copy and paste a bunch of stuff in Google Translate. Um, so there's that's sort of the the manual labor that I'm doing. And then at the, at the same time, I'm also, you know, look, if, if I can make the research process easier myself, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hesitate to not take that opportunity. So there are other websites that I look at. Um, so there's, um, there's one, uh, there's valueinvestorsclub.com. 
um, you know, your listeners, you know, they can either apply and with an idea, or if they don't have an idea, you can sign up for uh, either a 60 or 90 day delayed account for free. And there's a lot of, you know, Japanese names and international names on there that you can get ideas from there. There's also, um, let's see what else I use. There's another website called the corner Berkshire and Fairfax, which is a uh, community message board. And, you know, occasionally there's, there's some, you know, smaller microcap international stocks that people will be discussing on there. Um, there's microcap club, there's some zero.com. So there's, there, there are some of these investment websites that will discuss smaller um, international uh, stocks. Look, the, and, and, then, and then just doing a lot of reading. You know, there's no, there's no you plug in the magic formula and here's your output. You know, those days are gone. Um, it, you could have done that decades ago. Um, but today that, that mostly arbitraged away those situations. So you, you look, you can, you can go on a stock screen, right. And say, I want to look in Japan and find all the stocks trading below book value. And you can just start there with that list. Um, but look, a lot of those businesses are going to be losing money. A lot of those businesses are going to have massive Chinese operations. Some of them are going to be selling their own stock. So that's where the manual labor, uh, comes in, but but that's my day. It, it's just sort of uh, reading and going down and then, rabbit holes. So let's take an example. You look through and read 100 companies. How many of the 100 are you likely to actually put any money behind? For 100 companies, probably zero, maybe one. Yeah. So we're, you, there's a lot of due diligence, a lot that needs to go in. So yeah. sub 1% of the companies that you look at, you're actually going to be investing in. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, okay. certainly amazing. under 1%. Okay, amazing. So if my listeners are listening to this and they're going, all right, I'm, I'm based out of Canada, I'm based out of the United States, and most of my stock investing is all done in North America, but they want to participate in foreign markets, what would be like the country that you think that they should look at first before anyone, any other country? And I suppose, like, why? Why, why that country? Yeah, okay. I would. So I would look at Japan, and the reason why it's going to take the least amount of due diligence. It's it's easier to find really cheap stocks in Japan than almost anywhere else in the world. So if you don't want to be starting with A and looking through thousands of you know obscure securities and using Google Translate, and instead you just want to use a stock screen and find you know thirty to fifty optically cheap stocks. So it's, Japan. Japan might be a good place for people to cut their teeth before going into the more risky, risky markets where there might be more fraud that's involved or it's going to get really challenging like some of the other countries that we talked about today. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Amazing. Eric, thank you so much for your time. This is really interesting conversation. And I really like the way that you do your investing. It's not something that I've explored so much. So I certainly learned a lot today. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about what you do, if they want to check out your show, where can we send them? Yeah, so I, I do run an investment podcast called the Intelligent Investing Podcast. Uh, so you can go to intelligentinvesting.podbean.com and you can take a look at my show on there and it's on iTunes and you know, all the other podcast apps. Um, I love getting in touch with uh, people personally as well. So I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram. And my handle is simply Eric Schlein. Um, so if you could put that in the show notes, since the, the spelling isn't easy, it's S it's E R I C S C H L E I E N. 
both for Instagram and Twitter, um, I respond to all messages and, you know, happy to, you know, take a deeper dive with, with people if they want to contact me privately. And then if they want to check out what I do at my investment firm, it's uh, at Grand State Capital Management. It's gscm.co. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Eric, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.